and I, I say the, I don't say these words lightly, but I felt for some time now that American society is in some sort of weird kind of in some sort of kind of like low level, like kind of like cold civil war, for lack of a better term. Like there's just, you know, there's this the rhetoric is is and the, the public perception of the divisions is so extreme. That was MBHS history teacher Nate Bowen speaking on this episode's roundtable, where we discuss the events on Capitol Hill on January 6th. I'm Natalie R. Batman, the arts and culture editor for The Oracle, and I'll be your host today. Please join me by listening to my conversation with history teachers Felicia Hancock and Nate Bowen. Both teachers disclose opinions that don't necessarily represent the views of The Oracle. Oracle is a nonpartisan organization. So my name's uh, Nate Bowen. Um, I currently teach uh, college prep U.S. history and college prep civics and economics. And uh, I'm Felicia Hancock, and I currently teach college prep uh, civics and economics and AP government, U.S. government, AP macro. Let's start with just the election in general, um, because I, I understand that these people were rioting or protesting or whatever you want to call it because um, they believe that the election results were inaccurate. So um, can you just explain the system that we use to elect um, presidents in America and why has it been so contentious? So um, the electoral process in the United States, depending on the level of the office, uh, varies. But for the presidency of the United States, it involves multiple steps. And the steps were mostly outlined initially in the Constitution and then have been subsequently fleshed out with amendments and U.S. legal statutes. Um, so the way it works is uh, on designated election day, and now um, in the modern era, we have early voting. So up to so the best way to think about it is the election happens and election day is the last day to vote. <clears throat> Individuals across uh, states go and cast their ballots, whether through mail or in person. Those votes are subsequently counted up at the local level um, and reported to state officials who then uh, announce who won the popular vote in the state. And we have what's called a plurality system, which means that the person who wins the most votes wins the, the election, not the win You don't have to have a majority. It's not a 50% plus one. It's I won more votes than, than everybody else. And it's also a winner take all system in 48 out of the 50 states. So that means whoever wins the most votes in any given state wins the electors of that state. Um, and then the electors are a group of folks typically designated by state parties. Typically, they'll be elected officials at the state or local level or folks who are deeply involved in party politics at that state level. Um, and then their job formally is once the election has been certified by the state elections officials, and that's a little bit different in each state, uh, but roughly a few days to a few weeks after an election has taken place. Um, the state secretary of state of the state will say, yeah, the election is official, we've counted, we've done recounts when required, and so on. And we certify that Joe Biden has won the state of California. So about six weeks after um, the election date, electors travel to their respective state capitals, and they cast their electoral college ballots. Um, and there's a process about it. It's, pretty form it's a formality at this point, fairly routine, but... Those election electors, uh, electoral votes are then sent to the Congress of the United States. And on January 6th, um, following the election, uh, the uh, joint session of Congress convenes and they open up the electoral votes from each state and certify them. 
Um, and one thing that can happen is um, somebody can challenge the electoral votes from a state. Um, and it has to be a member of the House and a member of the Senate. And then they, if that challenge is considered legitimate, they will then debate and decide if the challenge is worthwhile or not. Um, if they vote it down, then the electoral count proceeds. If they vote, yeah, we should take a look at it. That <laughs> that actually hasn't happened since this rule has gone into place. So I'm not sure what exactly would happen, but theoretically there would be a commission and they would revisit the situation. So um, whoever wins 270 electoral votes becomes uh, president of the United States. Um, and just as a historical point, the founders didn't trust the voters. They wanted a president who would look like them, be like them and think like them. And so they created an electoral college system to ensure that. Um, and also to, uh, it was a way to um, ensure that the Southern states would have a great deal of influence in electing the president of the United States, um, which is very much tied to the institution of slavery and to sort of put a giant obstacle in the way, in the way of any attempts to abolish the institution of slavery in the United States. So, um, and the founders also never expected there would only be two parties. They expected to be multiple parties or multiple factions. They expected the election would almost always get thrown to the house because if you don't win 270 votes, um, the House of Representatives gets to decide and it's one state, one vote at that point. And they expected that would happen all the time. Um, only happened five times and the last time was 1876, so. I just, I mean, that was an amazing summary of a really complicated <laughs> and like just arcane process. Um, really, really good, Miss Hancock. Um, I think, you know, her, her explanation kind of speaks to just how complex and in some ways convoluted the way we elect our president is. And like she said, it goes back to the framers of the constitution. They didn't trust the people. They didn't believe that the masses could directly choose the leader of the country. Um, the only part of the federal government originally that was directly elected were the members of the House of Representatives. Um, so they created this convoluted compromise where the original idea was you would have this like group of wise electors from the states, like each state would designate these like wise men, of course, they were going to be men to meet and, you know, nominate who they think should be the president. You know, like she said, it would come from their class, it would come from their, from their group. And so the way the constitution is written, it says the states will um, determine, you know, how, how the electors are selected, who these people are. And they would meet in this thing called the electoral college, which is kind of a weird name, but I think of it as like an electoral convention in each state and they would cast their votes and you know, kind of meet in, in private. And that person who came out of that process would become the president. Now, over time, as America became more democratic, the states um, decided that, hey, let's you know, let the voters in our state choose who these electors will be. So when you vote for president um, in November of election year, you're voting for your electors. You're voting for who you think should be going to the electoral college. You're not really voting for the candidate. You're kind of voting for the candidate by default. You know, in the last election, if you voted for Joe Biden in California, you were voting for the, uh, what, 50, is it 55 electors? Um, mm -hmm. So it's based on the number of representatives you have in your state plus your two senators. So you were voting for those 55 people who would then go to the Electoral College to cast their vote for Joe Biden. You voted mm -hmm. for former President Trump. Likewise, we're voting for, the, for a different slate of 55 people, mm -hmm. right? And so that's why you get situations, and oh, let me mention this as well, and Ms. Hancock kind of touched on this, 
it disproportionately benefits smaller states, the Electoral College. If you think about it numbers wise, which is a little bit tricky to do, um, a state like Wyoming, South Dakota, North Dakota, the electors there actually represent fewer people than in California, the way it works out because of the Senate, because of those adding those two Senate votes. So um, in California, I think, again, the numbers are going to be like off somewhat. I think we have like 40 million people in this state. This is why I don't teach math. You've got 55 electors. You break it down. Um, there's three electors in Wyoming. There's only like, what, 500,000 people in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those people in Wyoming, they have a lot more weight relative um, to California in the Electoral College, if that makes sense. Um, so smaller, rural, and by um, default in our current system, conservative states have more weight in the Electoral College. A couple other things. One could originally have made an argument that the way it was set up really reflected a federal system of government, and that's what we are. A federal system of government is where the power is divided between the central government or the national government and the individual 50 state governments. And each has their own sphere of jurisdiction and authority. Um, they have powers that overlap. They have powers that are distinct to each that they're not allowed to interfere with. And so arguably the electoral college reflected that the president is the president of both the people of the United States, but also mm -hmm. of the individual states. And so effectively you had a two-stage process where the people vote and to some degree the states vote. The reason why that argument doesn't really hold water anymore is because of the population distribution in the United States. Um, currently, uh, about 50% of the population of the United States resides in just 12 states. They think by 2050, it'll be about 75%, which means that the density has pushed people into states like California or Texas or Florida, but their electoral college votes, while they've gone up in the House, they don't go up fast enough. And so it really gives that small, those smaller states a considerably more weight um, and, and uh, power in the Electoral College because those smaller states, again, because of the way we've sorted ourselves demographically, the cultural and social traditions of different regions, now those smaller states are typically whiter and more conservative. Um, and so it gives a default electoral advantage to a conservative uh, candidate, which right now would be in the Republican Party, but that could change. Right. Um, so in this election, what was the claim made by people who, who, who thought it was um, the votes weren't accurate? One, you had, you know, the pandemic and you had a huge increase in mail-in voting. And because of, again, and for a variety of complicated reasons, liberal folks tend to believe that the pandemic is a real thing and they're really concerned about it and they tend to vote Democratic, you had a higher turnout of Democratic votes coming through the mail-in voting. Whereas a lot of folks who, um, you know, and of course this is a generalization, um, you know, are conservative. They were listening to President Trump who was kind of downplaying the pandemic and they are much more likely to vote in person on election day. And so President Trump made a, or former President Trump made a concerted effort very early on to kind of say that mail-in voting was fraudulent, that mail-in voting was um, susceptible to fraud, susceptible to um, ballot stuffing. Um, he really, really put a huge effort into saying that this process wasn't gonna work, that it was you know, gonna benefit the Democrats, that it was gonna be, could lead to a stolen election. And you know, when the president speaks, people listen. So that was part of it. I think that was a big part of it. The, fa the fact that um, unfortunately in the last 
four years in particular, but I think it's been going on longer than that. Um, data and facts have become polarized. So yeah. it's entirely possible that what I'm about to say is going to strike some people as one, one-sided. But here's what we know from the, the research. Voter fraud in the United States is very, very minimal. Um, my, I half-jokingly say we can barely get people to show up to vote once, much less try to vote multiple times. Um, our voter turnout um, is is pretty low. Um, it's a pretty bad, especially when it's a not presidential election, a midterm or a off year. And so the, they've done a lot of research around this and they've found that voter fraud, it happens, a human system with human beings will have human errors, but statistically uh, voter fraud is virtually non-existent. And that is uh, largely to do with the fact that we have 50 states and thousands of counties um, in, in across the, and each county has its own voting system. So being able to commit voter fraud would require a sort of almost mind-bogglingly <laughs> complex plan in order to say, to sway the votes enough in enough counties and dealing with different types of machines and different dates for voting and different requirements for voting registration and so on for that to be effective. But that information is not, <clears throat> widely disseminated. Um, and so the accusation of voter fraud felt more possible because of the increased use of mail-in voting, even though several states, including Oregon, Cal- Colorado, and Utah, which kind of span the the spectrum from deep blue to deep red, have been doing mail-in voting for years, if not decades, quite successfully. Um, and there's never been challenges on that. But it just, it sort of sounds good, right? Like, of course, yeah, somebody could steal ballots or, or, or you know, uh, you know, to make fake ballots and so on. And all of this is not totally out of the realm of possibility because in the past, we do have parts of this country that has histories of terrible voter corruption. I mean, um, Chicago has a long history of this. New York City has a long history of this. Um, but because of technology and the systemization and institutionalization of registration and how you vote um, has grown across the states, it's increasingly hard. Like you really would have to, I can't even, <laughs> you'd have to spend years planning to, to successfully um, overturn a presidential election. Maybe you could do it for a mayor of a small town. I don't know. Um, but for a presidential election where literally tens of millions of people are voting. And I think this speaks to like, you know, again, back to federalism, this is kind of like another aspect of that is that every state, every location gets to decide how they're going to vote. And so we have 50 different ways of voting for a presidential election, you know, all sorts of different rules. Every state has its own rules. And, you know, when you can have early voting, how you do, how you conduct mail-in voting, when the polls close, how the polls are organized to carry out some sort of like massive conspiracy to to do it in seven or eight states that are run by different parties i mean you have arizona georgia run by the republican party you know whereas pennsylvania you know is run by the democratic party Um, to be able to coordinate amongst local officials in multiple states with multiple different methods would be like miss hancock said virtually Mm -hmm. but we live what i think another kind of speaks to kind of another aspect of what went wrong in this election or what went wrong in the perception of this election because actually the election was actually kind of amazing and very brilliant if you look at the facts i mean this was in the midst of a pandemic i'll just speak to this for a moment in the midst of a really terrible pandemic the worst we've ever dealt with in 
coming on the heels of well-documented um, interaction from foreign nations in trying to meddle in our elections on the heels of that, we pulled off an incredible display of democracy where more people voted, more people voted for president, for former president Trump than anybody in, in history. The problem for him is that more people voted for Biden by you know, 7 million more votes. The turnout was incredible. It was nearly flawless. There was like, if you actually look at the facts, the, the actual, how many, how many cases of voter fraud were there? Maybe documented in the Sandcock, maybe like five or six or something. Like, I don't know the exact number. That, that they found. That they found. Yeah. Legitimate or infinitesimal. It was really incredible. But I think the problem in with this election was the perception in that you have a lot of folks in this country who, um, a lot of grievances, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration. Um, the internet, social media has contributed to feelings of you know conspiracy belief in conspiracy theories and um tragically you had elected officials from the president on down feeding into that and giving fuel to that fire and it culminated in a really dark day in american history on january 6th right so let's um like go back in time a little just to see what in American history, if there have been examples of legitimate voter fraud, and also if there have just been claims of voter fraud, if um, or election fraud, if you know the citizens in the past have brought up a concern like this or a candidate, um, and what did that look like? Well, there's obviously always has been voter fraud of some kind. Um, I think some of it's inadvertent, some of it is deliberate. Um, again, we have. Historical examples, uh, probably the most widespread consistent was during the late uh, 19th century. But the Progressive Era actually emerged, and one of the reasons the Progressive Era emerged was in reaction to this consistent, persistent corruption that we saw, especially in these, again, these typically big cities, whether it was New York or Chicago, those are the two that get the most attention. But certainly you could find it in cities across the United States um, that were booming through the Industrial Revolution and watching the, the transition of the American economy and then this huge influx of immigration that was starting to occur. So um, people call Chicago the Windy City, and I think a lot of people think it's because it's literally physically, there's a lot of wind that blows. It's not called the Windy City because of that. It's called the Windy City because of all the hot air and nonsense <laughs> the politicians of, of the, you know, the city politicians would engage in. And, you know, the talk about, there's this old phrase called walking around money. Um, and so, you know, folks would show up to their, uh, to their uh, mass at church on Sundays. And, you know, there's a collection plate that goes around that you put money into the collection plate, donating to your, your church parish. And on the Sunday before election day, it would actually reverse. There would be money in the collection plate that you would pull out um, and it was called walking around money because you didn't have to work for it. You just got to walk around with it. And the understanding was here's whatever, $5, $10, which would have been a lot at that point in time. Uh, and the understanding is you're going to go ahead and vote for this person on election day. In two days, you're going to go ahead and vote for this person. Um, there's stories about, um, there's a phrase in, in political science called straight ticket voting, which means that you vote straight down the line ticket for all the same candidates from all the same party. On a modern ballot, as we now know, if you look, um, it's literally illegal to have all the candidates from the same party on the same in the same order on a ballot, precisely because they used to stuff the ballot boxes where they would take the ballot and they just draw 
a line down through the boxes straight ticket voting and drop the ballot in. And so when you showed up to vote at your precinct, they just hand you a pre-filled in ballot and you would drop it into the ballot box. And so that kind of stuff happened quite a bit, but it was happened enough that there was actually a reaction to it. And the progressive era instituted a lot of reforms, including introducing what's called the primary system, including um, getting us to the 17th amendment where U.S. senators are now directly elected and not elected by state legislators. So, so we've had, we've seen this corruption, we've seen the attempts to sway voters and so on, and, and reforms have been put in place. And we see that persistently, right? So the civil rights movement, one of the big pushes, of course, is the right to vote, the right to the franchise has to be upheld and protected because states, not just Southern states, let's be really clear, this was happening across the United States, but most egregiously in Southern states because they had institutionalized it through Jim Crow laws, we're pre- preventing blacks from voting, black Americans from voting through literacy tests and all of this, you know, poll tax, all this nonsense. And so in the 1960s and early 70s, we see a whole nother push of voting reform to ensure that the voting rights of black Americans in particular, by extension, other communities of color were protected and promoted. Um, so again, if you look at the pattern of US history, when there is this corruption that emerges, these attempts at voter suppression, these attempts, you see groups coming in and saying, we're not, we're going to fight against it. And you're seeing that today now because there have been consistent and persistent attempts at voter suppression in many states. And so groups like Stacey Abrams, uh, who's gotten quite a lot of attention, her group Fair Fight, um, spent a lot of time registering voters and getting them to the polls and fighting things like voter ID laws and making sure that voting, that polls weren't being shut down, that people had access to voting, they could vote more than one day, and so on and so forth. So we're seeing, we're seeing a reaction now against the attempts to stop the votes. Again, as these, these different examples emerge, um, two things to keep in mind. One is these historical, well, from my perspective, 1960 and 48 aren't all that long ago, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but that, that has pushed... Um, towards greater reform at, in terms of how to vote and the actual voting process. Mm-hmm. And so if you fast forward to 2000, when uh, George W. Bush was facing off against Al Gore, vice president at the time, probably the most controversial presidential election until this one, although that one really had some controversy that was, it was, it was a 538 vote margin that was the difference between a President Gore and a President Bush in the state of Florida. And when you go back and look at what happened, it wasn't because there was nefarious voter fraud happening with the votes. There was some really problematic ballot design, um, the famous butterfly ballots, um, you know, there's (laughs) the actual, you know, the hanging chads and pregnant chads. You know, it was a punch card system, so you had to, like, punch out the little square next to the person's name, and people always didn't punch hard enough, and so on and so forth. It was, but what it demonstrated was not that there was a concerted attempt to steal an election using, in sort of the more, quote-unquote, traditional historical ways, like 1960 or 1948 or 1880s, 1890s. What it demonstrated was we have consistently and persistently underfunded our democratic processes in the United States. We do not spend the money um, or the resources that one would imagine one would want to spend in order to ensure that the voting process itself is safe, is efficient, is clear, is accessible to any voter. 
um, we've consistently underfunded it. The voting machines they were using in Florida, they had been using for 50 or 60 years. And so in the aftermath of that, they're actually passed a significant voter uh, voting reform act. And so they've updated the technologies. 2004, we saw some similar issues with screen touchscreen voting. And that actually perpetuated some reforms now that a lot of states have basically said um, there has to be a paper, a paper ballot, a paper trail has to be clear and it's legally required so that if you go in and vote, you have a a physical paper, whether it's printed out after you've touched the touchscreen or you literally use a pen that shows (laughs) your vote and it can be confirmed. It doesn't have your name on it. That's illegal, but is attached to, you know, the number that you got when you enter, you know, when you, when you voted. And so that kind of reform exists. And that's kind of what you wonder the focus would be is like, if you're so worried about this, why isn't the money and efforts being spent to ensure that elections are as secure and efficient and clear as possible? Right. So when you talk about um, these reforms that have kind of happened as a result of potential election fraud, those are, how were those affected by the citizens themselves pushing for some sort of reform I don't know, petitioning their governments. What what kind of have the citizens in the past done to, to further that reform? The reforms happen because of citizen, the citizenry is pushing back. It's largely going to be a minority because most people aren't paying attention. Let's be really clear right. about that. But I think if you were to go back and, and actually watch and see this law was passed, what was the genesis of this law? It's going to be coming from grassroots organizations that have pushed and pushed for, for years and years um, and the reason is, is that if the system is consistently letting me get elected, why would I want to change it? So if changes are occurring, it's because two things happen. One, people were pushing for reform and two, people were electing people who committed themselves to legal and structural reform, which again, is all comes back to citizen um, mobilization. And I think the most public version of this in the modern era is the civil rights movement. The March on Selma was about voting rights. Um, Some of the great civil rights leaders who were uh, murdered were murdered because they were attempting to register folks to vote. So so the vote was central to to the entire movement. um, And it was one of the core uh, pillars. It was integration, especially integration of the schools, and then basically forcing the country to uphold the 15th and 19th um, amendments. And that's citizen action. I think you don't see it as much because let's be really honest, canvassing boards, which is an electoral process boards, um, uh, meetings are not good television, <laughs> right? Um, people vi- uh, uh, pros- you know, going and, and petitioning their city or local or state governments for voting doesn't make for good TV. And we are a visual medium. We are, the medium is the message has been said by many people, but the guy whose name I can't remember, Marshall McLuhan, I think. What gets the attention? What do, what, do think pe- what do people think is actually happening if they're not really doing much and not paying much attention? They're just kind of saying, well, what's on the news? But that doesn't mean that there aren't these dozens, if not hundreds of grassroots organizations across the country that are, again, very consistently pushing for, for these reforms and these protections. And Stacey Abrams and her group just happened to get a lot of attention, both because she's a very magnetic, charismatic personality, and also because she's been doing it for 10 years. And it turns out she was 
spot on correct about her analysis of the Georgia Dem uh, electorate. And, and about 10 years ago began this process of the electorate in Georgia, the demographics of Georgia are shifting and they seem to be shifting in favor of a more democratic electorate. So let's, it's time to start mobilizing those folks, getting them registered to vote, getting face-to-face -face time, knocking doors, um, getting them to the, and it, it was a 10 year process that is only now really getting the attention that it deserves because of the success of flipping Georgia, not just for the presidential election, but also the two Senate seats. So how has um, public perception been altered by either officials, um, you know, who maybe convince their, their, their citizens that something is wrong or do the opposite? What history is there behind presidents themselves or big organizations changing, changing like whether or not citizens trust the election? This time around, this specific election is so unique um, and such an outlier is that you really haven't seen that before. This concerted effort to basically denigrate and deny the outcome of an, of an election. I think it's been one of the most troubling things that I've witnessed in, you know, my my time observing public life. Um, you just, you don't, there wasn't a template for it. I think it fed into a lot of other forces. I think it was ultimately former President Trump's motives are kind of, you know, my, my, my perception of it is that he, I don't know what he actually believes, um, but he was tapping into very, very real grief, grievances that um, a lot of people have in our society in order to remain in power. There's a, there's a strong percentage of the electorate that at this point now, because of really powerful forces of political polarization that are some at their most extreme in American history than maybe they've been in since maybe like the 1920s. People distrust government, they distrust institutions, they certainly distrust the media, they don't trust, you know, they're like Miss Hancock alluded to earlier, facts have become polarized, um, sources of information have become polarized. It fed into that narrative, this idea that this election was stolen, that this power is being taken away from these people by these nefarious kind of globalist forces. And you just, you have not seen people do that before. I think there's a few additional things to keep in mind. One is the media landscape is very different um, than it was in the past. In some ways, um, you know, for most of US history, but especially post, you know, post World, for World War I when the modern communications technologies starting with the radio, um, and television and so on really become entrenched. Even even that as that changed, um, folks got information from a very small handful of sources. And for for better and for worse, let's be very clear. But to some degree, that created a shared narrative, even when that narrative may be completely false. But um, that that people, you know, everybody was watching Walter Cronkite on the CBS Evening News, or everybody was listening to FDR give the radio fireside chats on the radio. And with the advent of first cable television, and now of course the internet, it's entirely possible for an individual to consume information and news that only reinforces and supports their worldview so that you are in an echo chamber and you begin to believe that everything is this way because everything you're listening to, you're hearing all the people you're talking to primarily over the internet or your device are 
are saying the same things. And so you can begin to understand why it feels that you're shocked when an election outcome goes the other way or somebody who has been portrayed as literally a pedophile Satan worshiper is elected a senator or a president. Like, how is that possible? Doesn't everybody know that <laughs> this person is, a, you know, that's that's something we still have to navigate. It comes back to, I mean, we have a long anti-intellectual tradition in the United States of America that is this really fuels that. And <laughs> just let's put on my teacher hat here, you know, the reason we teach you guys critical thinking skills is for, for exactly this reason. It's not because I'm so, so hell-bent on you writing the very best essay about, you know, the pros and cons of checks and balances. It's because when, when you are, as a voter, or as a consumer, or as a person who knows voters and can influence them, you have the capacity to say, you know, this story that I'm hearing or seeing coming through my social networks and so on and so forth, yeah, it's compelling, but it doesn't, I need to do a little more research. I need to question it. I need to figure out where it's coming from. So I think that's part of it. And I also want to call out something that I think is really important to call out, which is there is a huge racial component to all of this. And this is not to attribute uh, malicious, uh, racist, you know, to, to everybody who, who voted one way or the other. Um, but there's a huge racial component. You can literally look, go back and watch this happen over time. The changing demographics of this country, the changing um, economic structures of this country are happening very quickly. And as I always say to my students, when you study history, you know human beings hate change. We don't like it. It's disruptive. It threatens our survival and so on and so forth. And typically in historical times when change happened too quickly, you nor normally would have some kind of revolution or revolt. Um, typically it was reaction against change. People pick up their pitchforks and their torches because they're like, you're threatening my survival. You're threatening my way of life. That even though it's, it might be terrible, at least I know how to manage it. I know how to navigate it. That's been happening in the United States and it's freaking people out. And to some degree, because of the history of this country where we have from day one created a caste system that has systematically marginalized, oppressed and exploited Black Americans in particular, but communities of color, as we've begun to say, been forced to through movements and so on and say, these communities have as much right, they are as much of we the people of the United States as anybody else. And so we have to protect their rights, ensure their rights, expand their rights, give them the right to vote, rent off office. That is causing disruption because it's, 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 re, it's reconfiguring the society and people are feeling like, well, if they are gaining, then maybe that means I'm losing. And to some degree, folks like former President Trump, that's the narrative that they, they tell. It's a zero-sum game. If they get more, it means you get less, which I don't think is an accurate reflection. But And so it's like, well, oh, no, that's we have to stop that because you're threatening my, my way of life. It's no coincidence that the places where the votes were challenged in the 2020 election were majority or very heavily um, population, uh, black population or communities of color. Notice that nobody was, nobody was challenging the votes in Wyoming. Nobody was challenging the votes in you know, South Carolina. <laughs> they were challenging Detroit. They were challenging Philadelphia. Um, that's, that's not a coincidence. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really, really important. Um, the last time in American history that you really saw in a big way, kind of this open flaunting of like, kind of like white nationalism, like just kind of out in the open, 
was like 1920s, which was a decade that in a lot of ways is very similar to what we're going through now. Um, you had the KKK march on Washington in 1925, like out in the open, <clears throat> like 30,000 Klansmen going down the, the middle of DC in their hoods and their robes, you know, without any masks, like faces open to the world, basically flaunting their muscle. The KKK was incredibly powerful during that decade. And it's because people were, there were these changes happening. Um, if you look at the demographics of the country at, on the eve of the 1920s, uh, the foreign born population in the United States was 14.7%. Today's foreign born population is 13.7%. There's about 44, 45 million people living in the United States who were born in other countries. And that's up from 4.8% in 1970. So people have witnessed kind of like a return to like, you know, this diversity of this changing, changing shape of the United States and, and who, who counts as being an American, just like in the 1920s, it had been decades of Ellis Island being open and the demographics of the country changing. At the same time, you have widening income inequality. Um, there's a lot of different numbers. There's a lot of debate about which statistics count to show this, but most economists agree that by many measures, the income inequality in the 1920s is very similar to the income inequality today. And so you have a rising percent, you know, a rising, you know, the small percentage at the top getting more and more of the nation's wealth. And so you have economic dislocation, you have uh, demographic dislocation, and you see a backlash. And we are, we're living through that. What you haven't seen are people in power openly using media channels to inflame and attack the system. That, that's something new. And that's something that people are going to be sorting out for a long time. Yeah, and I think it's no, I think it's no coincidence either that, um, you know, starting in the 1930s with the election of FDR and the exponential expansion of government power and influence in response to the overwhelming crisis of the Great Depression and then, of course, World War II, only the national government has the capacity and the resources to deal with something on that scale. But you essentially have, from the 30s all the way through the 60s, a, a growing power, a growing federal government that's getting increasingly powerful, which has its problems, but also a very strong government presence that's coming in and creating things like Social Security Administration, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, expansion of voting rights, expansion of housing rights, and, and essentially the government coming in and very actively and visibly creating a safety net, intervening to ensure that people's basic needs are being met. Again, not necessarily that they did it well or did it correctly and so on, but there's the attempt and then there's a backlash to that starting in the 70s with the election of Nixon and then subsequently Reagan and so on, where it was government's the problem. And so we're going to denigrate government. We're going to tell you why government's bad. And we're going to begin to take away these, these programs, in some cases for the better and in some cases for the worse. Or we're going to cut the funding and so on. And so we're in this seesaw moment where it's we had a strong central government that provided all this stuff and very strong economy in the 1950s and and so on. and then we see we shift away from that. And so I think people are saying, well, not only is my country changing from demographically and I don't quite know what to do about that, but what was true for my my father, or my mother, or my grandparents is not true for me anymore. It's not no longer true that you can go to high school and then get a, a, a job in a factory or something similar and have a decent 
what is called middle-class lifestyle, meaning you can buy a house and you can have a car and you can go on vacation and you can put food on the table without worrying it for your kids and that your kids can go to college. That reality is used to be true for way more people than it is today. Um, and that, uh, especially in more rural communities and smaller states. And uh, at the same time, by the way, it's become more of a reality for communities of color. So again, it's that seesaw push and pull. But I think people have this sense of the system isn't working for me. I have oh, I mean, a, a massive opioid crisis running through my community. That is people are addicted to drugs that they no reason for them to be addicted to. They were literally pushed on them. Um, the local factories have shut down. Nothing has been re has replaced them. The schools aren't great. All of this stuff. And when that sense of destabilization comes into place, people are going to react. And the question is, how do they react? Mm -hmm. And when somebody like President Trump comes along, and he isn't a first, he's not unique, he's sort of a consequence of thing, senses that and begins to push on those buttons in the calling on the, the fears rather than the hope, feeling the, the, the suspicion rather than, you know, determination and saying like, you are right to feel grieved and it's other people's faults and I'm with you and we're, I alone can fix it and stick with me and we're gonna make sure those people don't take anything else away from you. And, and that's what he did so successfully. Not the first, not the last to do it. But I think we saw January 6th was an inflection point, a sort of apogee where all of a sudden all that anger and resentment and, and hatred and your grievance like exploded in this way that most of us probably never imagined we'd see. But a lot of us said, yeah, we've seen this before. <laughs> it's happened to our communities. Yeah, so I want to touch on that a little, just the idea that, you know, there are people with legitimate grievances, you know, against the government or the system. And um, I mean, we saw them really just airing those grievances, no matter how kind of built up they were. So um, can you just touch on kind of why it's important either to acknowledge maybe the issues that these people who were marching on Capitol Hill um, w thought that they were facing and how just how it kind of differs what they were doing, um, protesting, you know, practicing their First Amendment rights, um, just how it's important to acknowledge that maybe some of that was reasonable in their heads and why it's important for us as a, as a country to, I don't know, help them out of that in some way or just understand, understand that perspective. The first thing is that, you know, the First Amendment only goes so far. Um, the First Amendment's super, super important, but it doesn't, you don't, you're not, the First Amendment does not allow you to to conduct violent acts. Like you're not protected under the first amendment if you engage in violence. It gives you the right to peaceably assemble. You know, it gives you the right to free speech. It doesn't give you the right to break into a building and break windows and, you know, shout that you wanna hang somebody. Like that is not protected under the first amendment. Speech that incites violence is, you know, Supreme Court has you know, ruled on this is not, is not protected speech. So, you know, that, that right there, these folks, you know, who engaged in this riot, they're not, protect, they're not protected under the First Amendment. This is not the first time the Capitol building has been targeted as a source of protest. You know, if you go back to the Civil Rights Movement, when they did the March on Washington, the original plan was they were going to do a sit-in in the Capitol. But the key there is it was nonviolent. You know, there was a, it was going to be a nonviolent protest. And there are all sorts of negotiations behind the scenes between Dr. King and 
John Lewis was there as well and JFK and they eventually decided like, no, we're not gonna engage in that. But there was gonna be a nonviolent protest. It was gonna be a peaceful assembly, whether or not it was, you know, on government property. This was not that, this was an effort to, you know, there's a lot sorting out that's going on, but the more that is coming out from the people who are arrested, I mean, this was an effort to subvert the government, to subvert our democracy, to, to put a halt to the peaceful transfer of power, to engage in violence. I mean, there was, there's all sorts of evidence that people were going to be injured or worse by some of these protesters, or that's the wrong word, these rioters, these insurrectionists. Um, so there's that, there's that piece. Now the grievances that these folks have, if I think there does need to be some sense of national dialogue about that and how that's conducted. Um, I'm not entirely sure how to do. Um, I think there's been a lot of effort put into understanding where people are coming from and what they're, what they're, what they're dealing with, but a lot of a lot of this stuff, and I'm talking specifically about the people on <clears throat> January 6th. I'm not talking about people who are conservative or who voted for Trump for legitimate, you know, reasons of you know I want small government or I believe that you know abortion rights should be limited or you know I'm worried about illegal immigration like that. Those are legitimate political viewpoints, and you have a right to support whoever you want with that. But I'm talking about people who want to like take down the U.S. government and who want to have a one party system where if you're a Democrat, you're like somehow against the country. I'm, I'm not sure how to reach those people. Like there's a level of conspiratorial thinking that's going on there that is, that's difficult to contend with on a, on a, on the level that we're having right now in this podcast discussion. Maybe Ms. Hancock has her own thoughts on this, but it's, it's, it's hard right now. I mean, I, I think we're still kind of sorting out what happened and where we go from here is another is another very important question. The folks who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, very specifically stormed the Capitol, I don't mean the, the rally that took place beforehand, they were not exercising their rights. There's nothing First Amendment about that. Um, and what they were doing was trying to overturn the will of the people. They were trying to subvert the basic democratic processes and the core values that we aspire to achieve. Their goal was to overturn a duly constituted election that was consistently upheld as a fully legal election by 60 courts uh, across the country, by 50 state election, you know, election processes and institutions. These folks were basically trying to overturn us. They attacked us when they attacked the Capitol building because that is our house. That is the people's house. That is where we send the folks we elect to represent us and to attempt to legislate and, and, and propel the country forward. And by attacking that building, they're attacking us. And that is not a First Amendment right. That is not a right anywhere. Um, um, and I know someone come back and say, well, I'm, I'm fighting tyranny. No, no, you're not fighting tyranny. <laughs> That's not what that was. And people died. Five people died as a result of, of that. So I, I feel very strongly about this, and this is super my personal kind of rawness, but my, my desire to really spend a lot of time trying to understand those people's grievances is not as strong as maybe it should be. I'm trying to have compassion for them and say they're, they're afraid. They're clearly afraid. This kind of violence comes out of a fear. 
what are they afraid of? But I don't think Viking man deserves an interview to figure out why, why did you do that? Like, no, you broke the law and you tried to subvert my democracy, our democracy. You will pay the price for that. And it's not about free speech. That's not free speech. So I, I just feel so strongly about that because I think in the attempt to try to figure out why this happened, people are forgetting what it is they did. And I just wonder how we would be having this conversation if God forbid an actual member of Congress had been killed. You know, what would that have, how would that have changed this discussion? But I just, I just feel, and in terms of how to, what, what really worries me, by the way, because the last time we had this degree of, and this is much more out in the open, by the way, um, this, the last time we had this degree of this extreme far right, and by the way, far left exists, there's been extreme far left in our history as well, but right now it's extreme far right. This level of anger and tension, it resulted in the Oklahoma City bombing that killed 168 Americans because Timothy McVeigh believed he was being a patriot and that he needed to kill and murder innocent people in order to stop the tyrannical government. And those people were killed simply because they got up in the morning and went to work. And that's that's where I think it became, becomes to become an issue of like, we need to understand the psychology and what's driving their fear and so on, but don't lose sight of the fact what the consequences of their actions are and could have been. And I think maybe the very best way to address is for our government to do things that help them. That's the only answer I can think of right now, Mr. Bowen. Yeah. Is mm. how do we how do we create a government that is consistently doing its best to meet the needs of the people, knowing it's not going to do it very well all the time and so on. But how do we address the income inequality? How do we ensure um, that we we promote uh, a stronger economy that benefits all of us and not just specific groups of us? Mm -hmm. um, how do we make sure that folks have safe roads to drive on and clean water to drink and that their kids have decent schools to go to? If we can get back to the job of governing and, and do that, I think that may be the that may be the best way to do this because I, I, how do you talk if you, you know, it's these folks are true believers. It's almost cult like, and I yeah. can sit down and bring them all the data I can, but they don't want to hear it. There's a certain fear of normalizing, like by acknowledging like the grievances of the people on January 6th, like normalizing it, bringing it into the political discourse and saying, Oh, mm -hmm. this is a legitimate political viewpoint. I get very wary of doing that. I don't know what the answer is. I think, I think it's really important that, people who broke the law are prosecuted, you know, fairly and openly, and that we show that, you know, you can't, you just can't do this stuff. Um, but to, to sep to then separate these viewpoints and be like, let's have a, let's have a conversation about why you're upset to, to get into it, it. It makes it, it continues to mainstream what is a very extreme mindset. You know, one of the really important values that America has had for most of its history. And of course people have been, have been locked out of this, but there's this, this notion of pluralism, that we are a, a diverse nation of diverse views, um, a multiplicity of viewpoints. And you know, if you go back to the civil rights movement, so much of that struggle was to be let into that system, to become part of it. You know, The people who wanted to sit in on the Capitol, they weren't doing it because they wanted to burn it down. They wanted to do it so that they could become part of it. This, this extremist activity, they see 
the other side is the enemy. You know, a lot of the folks in, on January 6th were openly racist, anti-Semitic, you know, believed in one, you know, one religion kind of United States where it'd be, you know, other faiths were not acceptable. Like that's not the tradition of the, of, of America that, that so many people have fought to be part of. That's not pluralism. It's the absolute, it's absolute opposite. So to give, to give kind of like an equivalency, like a, to, 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 get, to make these people feel like their, their views are equivalent to others and like to let, it just, it, it's a very slippery slope, but it's, I'm not, I'm not sure how exactly to handle that. I think of other examples in history where, you know, extremist views were, were normalized and kind of allowed to fester. It didn't turn out well for those democracies. I've been thinking about since January 6th, I wonder if the closest analogy to, to this time in terms of the sheer division of, of worldview is the 18... 1840s and 50s, and the, as the as the clear division between individuals who very much wanted to preserve these institutions of slavery and perpetuate the institution of slavery, and it was coming from a very specific white supremacist viewpoint. I mean, Jefferson Davis's cornerstone speech says it all, right? Versus the folks who were abolitionists and want to get rid of the institution of slavery, not because they necessarily believed in the equality of the races, but that there was this was just a divide that did not seem to be able to be bridged because it was just categorically opposed to each other. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if that's where we are right now. I don't know, but I, I, I do worry about that because I don't hear the extremist and the violence and the um, vitriol uh, that you, you heard or saw with the folks on January 6th, but I hear a echoes of that, some much softer iteration of that in our own community towards conservative viewpoints mm -hmm. towards what is now considered Republican or uh, evangelical Christian viewpoints and so on, where folks in our community are like, well, those people, look what those people are doing. Those people are, and to some degree, I agree, those you know, folks on January 6th were calling people's existence into, into question. You're not, you are not an American because you are X, Y, or Z. And I don't know if that we those people should be sit down and have, we have a conversation with, with folks who feel that way, but that othering is happening on both sides. And when January sixth occurs, it reinforces the same sense of, well, those people are not in those people aren't part of my country. That a lot of folks in our community, and I'll be honest, sometimes even I have, have these feelings where it's like, I don't, I don't get you, <laughs> and I, I don't. I don't want you to be here because you're dangerous and you're destructive, but it's, it's that split. And, and I don't know if we're as acutely divided in the same way they were in the 1840s and fifties, but I, it, that's to me is kind of, I've been worried, like maybe that's where we are right now. Maybe we're in the modern iteration of that. And I, I say, the, I don't say these words lightly, but I felt for some time now that American society is in some sort of weird kind of, in some sort of kind of like low level, like kind of like cold civil war for lack of a better term. Like there's just the rhetoric is, is in the, the public perception of the divisions is so extreme <clears throat> and the, the worldviews that people have. I mean, within my own family, I talked to, I have definitely have some conservative folks in my family. And when we talk on the phone we start kind of debating stuff, it's like, I think we both, I mean, we, we, we all care about each other, but we see like, we'll, we'll say like, man, I just, it's hard to understand where you're coming from. Like, it's hard to see the world the way you see it. It's like there's fundamental different worldviews going on. 
um, in our country between left and right. I just want to emphasize, and I'm sure Mr. Bowen feels the same way, uh, democracy only survives and thrives when there are competing viewpoints. Yeah. We need a healthy party system that's oppositional uh, because that's where the compromise is forged and that's where the, the ideas of what progress can look like emerge from. A single worldview is that's totalitarianism that's and so part of what i struggle with as well is how to separate the folks who attacked the capitol on january 6th from the folks like your family nate and i have in my family as well people who are genuinely you know very conservative and we disagree but we can have those disagreements in good faith and and not say well I don't like what you have to say, so I'm not going to listen to you. It's like, well, you know, it's uh, how do we live together? That's the question. Um, what is the role government plays in our lives, in our economy, in our society? And we're going to have different views, but then let's have those views. Let's have those debates. Let's have those discussions. Because that's from there emerges, hopefully, progress. That's all for this episode of Oracle's Forums. Come back next week for part two, where we will discuss party divisions, violence, language, and military response. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was hosted by me, Natalie R. Batman, and edited by Max Zonana. Oracle's Forums are a publication of the MVHS Oracle, so for more information, go to mvhsoracle.com.